Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the one and only Grant Kelly on the show. In South Australian circles especially, Grant is best known for owning South Australia's premier basketball team, the beloved Adelaide 36ers. Grant is also the CEO of Vicinity Centres, which is a company that owns and operates some of Australia's largest retail precincts, such as Chadston in Victoria and the Queen Victoria Building in New South Wales and the DFO in Perth. Grant joined Vicinity Centres as CEO in January 2018 and has over 30 years of global experience in real estate investment, corporate strategy, funds management and private equity. Grant was formerly CEO at City Developments Limited, a Singapore-based global real estate company with operations in over 20 countries. Prior to this, he was co-head of Asia Pacific for Apollo Global Management, leading their real estate investment activities in the region. And in 2008, Grant founded Holdfast Capital Limited, an Asian-based real estate investment firm, which was acquired by Apollo in 2010. From 2004 to 2008, Grant was CEO of Colony Capital Asia, where he guided acquisition and asset management activities in Asia. Then from 2002 to 2004, he was based in New York, where he was principal at Colony, with the responsibility for US and European investment opportunities. Grant holds a bachelor degree from University of Adelaide, a master's in economic sciences from London School of Economics, and an MBA from the illustrious Harvard Business School. Further to being the owner and chair of the Adelaide 36s, he's chair of the Holdfast Assets, a director of the Shopping Centre Council of Australia, deputy chair of the Board of Governors of Pulteney Grammar School, a council member for the Asia Society Policy Institute, and a member of the Premier's Economic Advisory Council in South Australia. In this episode, Grant and I talk about a lot. We talked about his journey and his career and how he found himself owning the national basketball team, the Adelaide 36ers. We talked about the key influences in his life and factors for his personal and professional success. And he dedicates a great deal of his learning and success to the amazing relationship that he has with his mother. We talked about the thoughts and traits of a great CEO. And he described to us how a remarkable and high-performing team actually work together. We deep dived into performance and the areas that he places his focus on for businesses to actually be successful. Grant then provided his thoughts on how to manage family and business and he says that we can't be a workaholic, we need to prioritize family and how something as simple as walking your dog each morning can bring a lot of joy and help you find that escape. We talked about the world of basketball and why he decided to become the owner of the Adelaide 36ers. We talked about his workload and the emotions of it all and how he has the ability to compartmentalize. We also asked him the big question of when does enough become enough? And I'm absolutely sure you want to hear the answer to that. It was an absolute pleasure talking to Grant and I know that you're going to absolutely love this podcast. If you'd like to check out his profile, you can find it at Grant Kelly on LinkedIn. And feel free to connect with me too. You can find me at Daniel Franco on LinkedIn. 
If you'd like to learn more about some of the other amazing leaders that we've had on the Creating Synergy podcast, then be sure to jump on our website at synergyiq.com.au or check us out at the Creating Synergy podcast on all the podcast outlets. Cheers. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco and I am very, very excited today to have the one and only Grant Kelly on the show. Thanks, Grant, for coming on. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. You're uh, you're a pretty well known man uh, in the in in sort of the ranks of South Australia and Australia, and done some amazing things in your career. Um, owner of the Adelaide Thirty Sixes, CEO of Vicinity Centres, doing some wonderful things there too. So, can you give us a little bit of a background about your story and how you uh, found yourself to where you are today? <laughs> oh, it's uh, probably a bit serendipitous, uh, to be honest with you, Daniel. I um you know, I started off, grew up in Adelaide, went to school and university here, um, obviously loved the city and and the culture and, and you know, um, just what a wonderful place it is to live. So uh, I was overseas for about 30 years, um, close enough anyway, um, between education and work. Um, and then in 2017, um, I received an offer to come back and be CEO of Vicinity Centres uh, in Melbourne, um, which was a Wonderful opportunity. I think it was a company that was poised for, you know, a period of growth, uh, which has indeed transpired. And um, uh, so I, I, run, I have a national role. Um, I'm based in Melbourne, but I spend a large proportion of my time here because my family are, yeah. are here. So um, I, I guess I've been very lucky really with, with the way things have worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Can, you, can we unpack sort of the start of your career and – and, uh, and the decision to to get out of Australia, really, you talk about moving overseas for 30 years, there's got to be some uh, some pretty amazing stories. <laughs> I, I know you went to Harvard and, and you, you know, you did your MBA yep. over there. It, it, yep. is it, uh, let's, I'd love to hear your stories on, yeah, on sure. your career and how you grew into these roles. Yeah, so the um, uh, the start of it really was uh, 1986. Um, I just finished at Adelaide Uni Law School and uh, I went overseas to do a um, what turned actually into a, a master's in international relations at Lund School of Economics, and that's where I developed probably a, what's turned into a lifelong interest in, in uh, public affairs and international affairs specifically. And um, I then actually moved uh, after that quite quickly into the business world. So I trained as a lawyer but probably felt that um, – and I was just one of those people, I suppose, that had a – a desire to learn uh, about the world mm-hmm. and I was therefore able to to travel and to um, uh, work at the same time. And, of course, the world in 1986 was just opening up. <clears throat> you know, we look at the problems today and, um, you know, it's so difficult, I think, for young people, whereas I'd say in my generation um, we had, um, you know, a booming um, international economy and that created a lot of job opportunities. Um, so I, I came back actually to Sydney for a short period of time but was then posted quickly to New Zealand um, uh, in a, in a, as a management consultant yeah. and then worked uh, in, in that capacity for a number of years, uh, went to Harvard, um, came back in a short period. Um, after I came back, I went into investment management and that was sort of where I really was probably um, at least in the Asian uh, financial circles best known. Yep. Um, and so it was interesting for me to, to come back and take on more of a corporate role uh, in Australia. Um, but, yeah, but li- look, lived and worked in, in a number of places. I mean, 
I break it down roughly as follows just to give you a um, ballpark, but I, I think I had a combined total of about five years in the US, about three in uh, the UK, and then um, close on 20 uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in Asia. Um, so that was sort of the rough split. Uh, and, yeah, was lucky enough to make great friendships and have great opportunities in each of those places. Yeah, brilliant. I, I didn't want to ask you a political question, but something is coming to mind. And, and you, we've seen in the, in the media yeah. lately, uh, previously with the previous government, talking about uh, people staying in South Australia, yeah. right? We're having this influx almost yes, to, yes. of growth. And your story is typically the opposite, which was the old story where people would leave yeah. South Australia. Do you believe that the, the simple fact that you did get to go out into the world and experience these opportunities in, in all these different countries that it has set you up for success? And can you get the same success in South Australia if you just decide to stay here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I was just a specific um, person in a particular role, which was at that stage advising large corporates. Um, and the opportunities were, were quite um, uh, specific and, and actually, frankly, quite limited. Mm -hmm. So... I remember when um, when I went to the company was called Booz Allen, yep. um, and when they hired me, there were only four positions for for fresh graduates in mm -hmm. Australia, and I was lucky enough to get one of them. That was in uh, 1989 when I came back from London uh, for for a couple of years. And what actually happened, I think, in the intervening period was that Australia grew. It's a much more different, more diverse, exciting place than it was, mm -hmm. um, uh, and indeed, I think there's there's great opportunities now to frankly keep our, our kids here um, and I think that'll continue you know I think South Australia has so much to offer um, all the cliches that we know about livability etc uh, have always been there but what's occurred I think in the recent past um, has been the growth of digital uh, defense um, particularly IT uh, there's a range of roles now uh, in things uh, such as cyber um, so a lot of the new economy that we're moving into, um, you know, I think globally, where where the world is essentially virtual, uh, means that we can actually have those global roles, but do them from South Australia. Mm. Um, indeed, my partner Kirsty's a pretty good example of this. She's um, the sales enablement lead for a division of Microsoft Asia Pacific, yeah, wow. and she, and she does it from uh, our home in Adelaide. So, yeah, so these are sort of examples of how I think people who have uh, real talent, great experience, can actually um, leverage that, you know, and stay close to their their family um, and their, and their friends, and the place they love. That's amazing. So, why are you then, when you say you're based in Melbourne, and then but you're here <laughs> often, can you be based in South Australia? Yeah, it's pretty. I think the the key thing is to regard. Um, you know, QF740 yeah. uh, on a Monday morning as a bus. Um, I think if you, can, if you can sort of mentally say, you know, to yourself, um, gee, you know, I've got to fly in and out a bit yeah. um, and just treat it as a, it's just an ordinary thing. Yeah. Um, I can get door to door in about three hours. Okay. Um, I, I do frustrate the, the guys at Qantas a little bit with being uh, maybe the last fellow on the plane yeah. and the first one to sprint off at the end. But no, look, it's very doable between here and Melbourne. I think... Um, uh, you know, it's a one-hour flight. It's it's pretty doable, and and I uh, make it a policy that if we have a midweek event, a school event, or something like that, I come back for it. Mm. So I treat it again as as a, as sort of a virtual uh, uh, work workplace. You know, between yeah. Adelaide and Melbourne, and and indeed nationally. Um, so what's the dynamic? So it's, it's worked like? quite well. 
Um, so sorry, the, um, dyna- the dynamic. That, are you here yes. for two, oh. two, three days, five days? Yeah. So I, t- I typically try to do two to three days a week in Melbourne, okay. um, or in another in a non Adelaide city, and then I'll, I'll often try to do a Monday and potentially a Friday if I can swing it um, back here in, in South Australia, and then of course weekends here. Yeah, brilliant. Booz Allen, you were a management consulting. Uh, what were you right. specifically? Uh, we are a consulting company. Yeah. We're, we're specifically uh, focused on change. And yeah. Helping enabling leaders through change programs. So yes. what were you specializing is with the strategy finance is that your your core background? Yeah, absolutely. So so it was strategy and finance in in the main that's what I sort of majored in <coughs> at Harvard um and it was an interesting job because uh, in that era there were very limited um as I mentioned earlier roles mm. but actually the the nature of consulting was different. And I remember actually when change management came to become uh, you know quite appropriately seen as really the key uh, to the strategy piece. But that was probably the mid-90s to late-90s when that really came in. It came in off the back of a lot of process re-engineering and digitisation of of businesses. So I think what happened was, you know, you had um, essentially guys like myself that would be um, working on a three- to four-week strategy study Mm. and then the client may not implement it. And what we actually came to understand was, we always saw our value as being that final report, but the client saw it two years from now, the implementation, the turnaround of their business or one year or whatever the time horizon was. And I think I think that therefore um, evolved uh, and the consulting profession, I think in a certain sense, morphed into something far more focused on almost embedding yourself with your client and mm. actually owning the outcome. Yeah. Um, and that actually, I think, is a good thing. Uh, you know, I think oftentimes in the old days we were perhaps guilty of of generating brilliant analysis that would sit on somebody's shelf. Yeah. And, and in fact, you, you learn on the journey that what really matters is winning the hearts and minds and getting people to execute. And Absolutely. that and that was what uh, you know I, I, I admire about groups like like your own, Daniel. Is is I think that's where the most value gets created. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean. There's no point having a strategy without the ability to execute it. Right, right, <laughs> right. Exactly, and, exactly. And, and and where do you believe that that's that early adoption and early uh, knowledge into that world of strategy and finance? Probably the two most critical things when it comes to being a CEO yeah. or a managing director or someone who is in that C-suite level. Is that helped you and set you up for the success that you are you find yourself today? Um, look, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think I I think the I think the real the real key to to my success was actually having great mentors and great teams that mm. I worked with. Um, I know that again is something people say. I, I genuinely mean that. I think yeah. right through life, the the number one way you learn is from from observing and and from being led, and um, and then you in time become um, the leader. Uh, so I think it's evolving into a CEO. I had some some great role models along the way. Um, Functionally, yeah. I mean, I think I think strategy is is important, but it, but many functions are operations is is, mm. is particularly in the shopping center business is crucial. Yeah. The, the the thing that a strategic orientation gives you is perspective, mm. so it enables you to I think prioritize to set uh, uh, goals and targets that are meaningful, and where the financing background was really helpful was probably uh, in, in I developed very deep set philosophies about. Business, you know, I, I think that costs need to be matched with revenues mm. at all times, if at all possible. Uh, I, I think um, in terms of debt management, in particular, 
uh, I've sort of perhaps become, I suppose, well known for advocating, um, you know, that, that balance sheets need to be strong. Mm. Um, I am probably a bit old school in that I believe you are always accountable 24-7 to a shareholder, no matter how large or small, and to your team and to the community. Um, but all of these were, think, were lessons that actually I picked up from watching some great uh, people in action. Um, and, and that was really ultimately, a, a, uh, I think, what shaped my approach to being a chief executive today. Brilliant. We'll come back to the chief executive thing, but I want to talk yeah. about the mentors slash coaches yeah. part. I believe it's absolutely critical. And in fact, since I've adopted the methodology of having a mentor slash coach, a real business yeah. coach where I pay extremely good money for, for this, uh, yes. I have seen myself, my own personal development and the business grow twofold. There's some stories that are floating around about you used to um, sit around listening to your father and, and, <laughs> and his mates yeah. uh, speak. And can you talk us about how that shaped you? And then, I mean, is that where you saw your um, your desire to learn from others come from? Yeah, I, I mean, that story, it's a, it's a funny one that stunned the rounds, I suppose. But, yeah, I was the, um, I was the sort of the ball boy slash, um, <laughs> you know, what I, what I always call beer boy. Um, <laughs> For, for games of tennis that used to be um, uh, uh, at our family home uh, down at Summerton Park when I was a, a young guy growing up. And Dad was a, a great uh, influence. But I have to say my mum built a really successful real estate business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think I learned from her mm. uh, as much if not more than I did from my dad. And mm. particularly from mum, I learned the power of actually um, – and this was, again, in the 80s, this was not commonplace, but so mum was a real standard bearer. Um, the power of actually um, the soft skills that you you oftentimes get from um, from women and also their loyalty, their time management capabilities because they've got to juggle so much. Um, and, and frankly, also just, just insights that, that sometimes um, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you, you may not have. Mm. And, and I always have... Even today, um, gone to my parents for on major decisions, but um, with dad having passed away, you know, mum is somebody I talk to literally every day mm-hmm. um, to the extent that last night I was getting my hair cut at Glenelg and I, I um, and, and uh, we live up in the city and I, and I, I um, uh, mum lives, still lives at Glenelg and, and I, uh, I just called her because I actually wanted to apologise. I wasn't going to stop by for our usual chat. Uh, so I think it's very important to honour your parents yeah. in, in many, many ways. Obviously, as a son or daughter, you know, you, 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 I, I'm very old-fashioned. I think you have a duty yeah. as your parents get older but to, to help them as they help you. But I also believe that there's so much knowledge there mm. and I think sometimes we forget that. Mm. Um, and, and I was an example of this last night. So I called mum up and, you know, we chatted for about 20 minutes um, uh, about all sorts of things. But I, I, I take something from each of those conversations yeah. in, in ways that she may not even uh, perhaps be aware of because yeah. I'm her son but but I find her just a remarkable uh, influence as well. I feel like I have to pick up my phone and call <laughs> my mum. Do it, it because it, it, she'll, she'll <laughs> like and, – and you know what? You know what it's like too. It's, 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 it's not – you know, society now is quite ageist. Mm. You know, we don't always respect – wisdom we're so connected through social media and yeah. in fact the digital world is a bit of a barrier to entry for a lot of older folks so it's more important than i know you're very close to your parents it's it's more important than ever to actually reach for them in yeah. maybe a more traditional sense of just dropping by or picking up the phone 
Yeah, it's funny because I feel, I feel like as my life has and my career has progressed, you know, when I often started my own family um, and then started a business, which is now doing well and, you know, so yeah. a few staff floating around and you, you get busier, right? And, yes. And you tend to forget yeah. about the foundations that help you get there. Uh, 100%. And it's not that you haven't, you don't still love those mentors and love those um, uh, institutions that shaped you. It's just that you have to, honor it you know yeah. and and uh, um you know i mean i think institutions equally funnily enough i i joined the board of my old school and Pulteney, 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 yeah Pulteney. and it's incredibly enriching yeah um and it it um it's enriching certainly for me but i hope for the school mm. as well because i think um institutions it's 175 years old this year you know they don't by happenstance stay around for 175 years so there's greatness all around us mm. Uh, in all walks of life, it could be a footy club or whatever, but giving back to those institutions as well as those people is is very important. What are your thoughts on the future of education? You, you you're on, you're in this board and it and you know shaping the children yeah for the future of tomorrow. I mean, this is a very important role. What are you, where are we going with the well, education? I think it comes back to actually the gap between strategy and implementation that we mm. talked about earlier. I think in education, what's probably happened is we've evolved from this academic approach to classroom learning and mm. and we are now actually requiring uh you know kids to actually um you know um become more practical mm. so uh, you know one of the great initiatives um that i've seen is for example is in year 11 the research project uh and you can do it i think in either year 10 or year 12 as well which is a um goes towards a student's tertiary admission mm -hmm. but actually requires them to to uh, run a project and actually deal with people in the wider community and, and 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 interview them and learn from their experience and then and only then construct the story, the narrative. And I think that's fantastic because in my day, it's going back a long time. Yeah. I mean there wasn't there wasn't that degree of practicality. No. So I think I think I think the other thing that's happened is education finds it harder to be relevant in an era of Google. So yeah. you can't just say, look, that's true. You know, history book you know, A is over here, read it, we've got an exam on Friday. You've actually got to be more relevant than that. You've got to generate insight. And and that's, I think, where where I've, again, learned being on the school board is, um, and, and I've got tremendous respect for how the school has approached this new educational sort of paradigm. Yeah, I love it. And kudos for getting involved with it, right? I mean, you're <laughs> how much more busier can you be? Not much, <laughs> not much. <laughs> you, <laughs> no. um, so, I mean, look, everyone especially within the realms of South Australia, would know you as the owner of the Adelaide 36s. But I do want to deep dive into the role of the CEO. I mean, we do get a lot of, you know, yeah. the C-suite and um, leaders listening in. And, and and so for me, you've, you've managed some huge portfolios. You think about with city developments and then and now vicinity centres. Yeah. You know, what what is a, some advice that you can give to, to an aspiring CEO, so someone who is looking to grow their career, looking to take on a portfolio, looking to manage and lead people, work to vision, work to strategy, understand all, all the above, what would be some real traits that you would like to see in some of those aspiring CEOs? Um, the first thing is, to, I think, to 
to always be authentic in what you're being brought in to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, vicinity when I took it over was an amalgamation of uh, two companies. Uh, my skill set was probably uh, somewhat suitable in um, maybe business building and turnaround management uh, because, as you know, in a post-merger integration scenario, there's a lot of challenges. Yeah. Um, and and so I think the first thing is to recognise from the business challenge, you know, why me? Why was I hired? And, and make sure that that value proposition from you is what you're giving back to the business. Mm. And then I think it's a question of actually the team. Uh, I think you've got to have people around you that are good at things that, that you maybe perhaps are not. And one of the, the great things that age teaches you is that you can't be – it teaches you to do two things actually. It teaches you that you can't be great at everything. Mm-hmm. And in the process of doing that, it also teaches you to celebrate what you are good at. And so I think it's understanding that balance, not being too shy to advocate your point of view when it's in a clear area of strength, which, again, as you likely said, as far as you said earlier, Daniel, and it's likely, I think, correct, is that's probably for me still strategy and finance. But surround yourself with people that are outstanding, you know, operations, Mm. human resources, corporate affairs, um, legal um, you can't do it yourself. You, you can't, and yeah. and then, and then managing that team, and getting the best imaginable person for the role. And when I say imagine, I use that deliberately. You know, never make a battlefield promotion because you know you're panicking and a, and a role has come up. You've always got to be thoughtful and strategic about people. And and I'm I'm really honoured by the team I've assembled at Vicinity in the last four years. It's an extraordinary. Uh, group of people um, mm. like genuinely the best team I've ever worked with mm. and I really mean that um, uh, with total sincerity it's a remarkable group but I think it reflects the fact probably that I've become maybe older and a bit wiser and rather than recruiting people that were similar to me I recruited people that were different mm. shared values absolutely we get along well socially yep but their skill set does things that I can't do and then the collective business benefits mm. What does what does a remarkable team look like on a day to day basis? You talk about this team being one of the best that you've ever assembled. Yeah, going into work each day, what does remarkable look like? I think it's 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 the effortless coordination. Mm. It's the fact you can almost finish each other's sentences. You're so aligned mm. on what the mission is, and you, and you're all again in in your different respective domains. But it's it's, it's figuring out how to actually coordinate that group. Um, I think high-performance teams are um, operate almost, and we've done a lot of work at Vicinity on this through a brilliant uh, Melbourne-based academic, uh, Joan Lurie. Uh, and what Dr Lurie's ta- taught us is that companies operate like things in nature as systems. And so it's getting that system to work seamlessly. Everyone knows their role. Uh, everyone... Um, understands the point of connection of their role with another role and it's stitched together by shared values. Mm. And if you do that, it's funny how life is just much more straightforward. So that to me is the key, is understanding, um, again, your role in the system, working collaboratively, and that's what the team looks and feels like day in, day out for us today. Um, It's been a journey to get there, to be honest, but I actually, you know, and I think the other thing is just viscerally in the pit of your stomach, you know it. When you're yeah. part of it, right? Yeah. Like you, you were a great uh, athlete in your day. You, you know that what defines a good team is you really just want to be with them all the time. Yeah. You just love them, right? You just love their 
company and camaraderie and their and their ethics and all you know everything that makes them uh, unique. Y- you can't wait to see them when you do drive your yeah. car in in the morning, and that and that's where I think we are today. Do you still have to keep as CE? Do you still have to keep that le- level of accountability to the team? Do you manage, oh, absolutely? Yeah. yeah. And how do you manage that? Oh, that's a really good question. So I think, so I think, I think the first thing is to recognise that in a diverse uh, workplace, the the number one way of leading a team is, is actually intellectual. Mm. It's a really interesting point of departure from the old days where it was hierarchical and mm. you'd have a rah rah speech and. You know, frankly, it was a it was a world that was dominated by you know if we're if we're really honest, white male privilege. Mm. Um, you know, how do you migrate to a new world where you have, thank goodness, much more diversity and therefore more availability of talent and ideas? And the answer, I think, is that you 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 have to lead intellectually. You have to add value through how you think, because everyone can access. A thought. Not everyone can access an experience that mm. you've had or somebody has had or not had, yeah. but you can access a thought. And, and I think sort of the corollary of that is you've got to have an ability to admit when somebody has a better idea. Mm. And one of the things about being a CEO is, is letting go uh, the old paradigm that you had to always be right. Yeah. I think actually you gain strength by admitting that you yourself are on a journey that you yourself may not have all the answers and, you know, you know, let's let's figure this out collaboratively. And a lot of that, by the way, comes back to my early training at Booz Allen. They, they used to have a philosophy at Booz Allen that because it was a very analytically focused firm, so it really rewarded, um, I think, you know, people that, that had great thought processes. Yeah. And the concept was the idea was, was king, yeah. you know, or, or queen if you want to use a politically yeah. correct term. Yeah. And and that was a great way to grow up because you sort of, sort of you know, as a 24-year-old, I was sitting there and I, my opinion mattered with somebody twice my age who was a, a leading partner of the firm. Yeah. And and I, I've tried to uh, have that philosophy. I think the other just quick one on that is accessibility. Mm. People have always got to feel the CEO is approachable, um, friendly, not familiar, by the way. I, I can talk about that in a second, but... You've got to be friendly but not familiar. You mustn't try to arrogate into your life the personal lives of your team, but you've got to be approachable. Yep. And I think that, you know, these, these, that combined with the dominance of, of thinking um, usually gets you to, to, a, to a good outcome. I love that. Can, can we just touch on yeah. the not familiar part? Yeah. E- explain why that is so critical. Again, it comes back to I think this concept of sort of workplace diversity and respect is – we all have unconscious biases. Mm. So, so the way I think to be a CEO is to give people um, a sense of you as a person but not to try to invade their world. Mm. Um, you know, for example, I never call anyone on my team um, after hours or on weekends unless it's an emergency. Mm. And we do have emergencies. You know, we have incidents at the shopping centre sometimes on weekends with you know, very regrettably, someone may, may be injured, for example, yeah. and, and we do need to to organise around that. But if we plan our work properly and we work really hard, you know, let's say sort of you know eight till five or eight till six, or whatever the hours are, then we have the ability to actually create space. Mm. And I believe um, that people do better when they have their own life that's independent. Mm. 
uh, I'm sort of a very anti the concept that that it's end to end. I, th- I think again, it comes back to systems theory. You know, you play a different role as a husband or father or or mother or daughter in your home life than you do when you're, you know, when you're here and you're Daniel and you're the CEO of the company. So you have, uh, we all have that that need for that that outlet, and I think it's crucial for people to feel space. Mm. And so I don't try to try to be their best friend or to be anything like that. I just try to be professional, helpful, courteous and approachable and leave it at that. And, and, and create that level of boundary. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and actually it's interesting you said that because what defines a system is the boundary. Yeah. So if I'm actually saying, look, this is work and it's a system and I'm a really hardworking CEO and I play my role, but I draw a boundary around it, it then creates room for their other world, their other system, if you will, which is their, uh, if you want to call it their real life, yeah. and, um, and that's family, friendships and the like. And, and it's, it took me a long time to evolve to that because I'm quite a gregarious person. Mm. And I remember, though, again, mentors can sometimes work antithetically, you know, against uh, how perhaps they're trying to be perceived. And I remember as a young guy, I remember being in New Zealand and there was a, it was my manager who would um, always, and I had a girlfriend who used to come over and visit. And, you know, I was a 24-year-old guy and, and, and this fellow would always think it was fantastic to organise a lot of events because he, he thought we were a nice young couple and all the rest of it. But we had no space. Mm. And, um, I, you know, I know it was well-intentioned, mm. but it actually created a sense of claustrophobia. So giving people the room to be themselves away from the office, away from quote boss is is crucial i think yeah and it's not to say that you don't show interest in their lives right but create that clear defining boundary uh, absolutely and, yeah. and the other thing is as males we can unconsciously if we're trying to be friendly or sorry if we're trying to be familiar we can appear very blokey and we can actually create a sense of exclusion mm. for people that are not us mm. uh, who for example women and so we've got to be so careful with how we're signalling as well, mm. you know, right, by, by being excessively Absolutely. friendly um, yeah. and always talking about the footy or, or what have you. Yeah, 100%. So going back to the strategy finance yeah. piece and, and, and still wrapped up in the CEO role, what I, I know the answer is all the above, right? <laughs> the answer is always going to be all the above and whatever and it depends on how it but, – but in your mind – for a business to be successful, as a leader, as a CEO, what do you concentrate wholeheartedly on first? Um, performance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's ultimately, and that's a you know, as you sort of foreshadowed, Daniel. It, you know, it, performance is an easy answer to that question. I think the real question is, what does that mean, and how do you get to perform, right? But, yeah. but my fundamental is performance, which is measured by a number of things. Um, uh, obviously, there's financial metrics, but there's things like engagement scores, yeah. uh, which really matter. There's um, ESG, which is crucial mm-hmm. today. And so you've almost got a, uh, a set of performance criteria you've got you've to meet. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's very much the focus. Um, how you get there, of course, is the tough part, but that's, that's certainly where I ultimately, uh, I think, uh, should be evaluated and, and and indeed are evaluated is is around uh, the performance of the business across a number of of key metrics. Mm. 
Um, so I hope that wasn't too generic. No. And happy to dive into each of them. Well, is but, the yeah. performance based on executing the execution of the strategy? Is that is essentially what you're saying? It, it is, but it's also, you know, one of the, um, I think, things about strategy is, and there's this saying in the military that, you know, no battle plan survives engagement with the enemy, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's it's having a plan but being prepared to change the plan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we have had a fantastic... Uh, I think uh, um, sort of strategic coming together of all the different parts of our business in the last four years, but we had a massive disruption with COVID, right? Mm. And so we had to pause our strategy that was really a a pre-pandemic, you know, growth strategy and go into crisis management. And it's it's almost like you've got to have the adaptability. You've got to have a skill set that can adapt Mm. and... And the fundamental thing about strategy, I believe, is being prepared to see it evolve mm. and change it when the external conditions change on you. Um, and, and that is probably the, the key to being a perennial leader. Mm. You know, I think if you're a, if you're a one-trick pony, you've got a great strategy, you know, you, know, you invent the, a new product, awesome. Yeah. Th- that's rare. For most people to be year in, year out, um, you know, um, in contention with your with your market with your competition, you, you have to adapt, and and that to me is probably the thing that we've done the best in the last couple of years. To be honest, yeah, brilliant, yeah, adaptability. In yeah, I think it's just an element of emotional intelligence as well, yeah. right? And and not yeah. not letting the ego get in the way, right, right. If if you do need to adapt, and like you said, it's about using the people within. Um, it's about the idea. It's about and it's funny you should mention ego, but um, I think the myth of a lot of successful people is, oh, they must be highly egocentric. Um, I've actually found the opposite is true because I think in a highly competitive world, it's really difficult to be egocentric and survive. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just got to look at examples in the world of sport. Um, you know, every year you have to you know, you know, rethink how you condition yourself, how you, if you're a tennis player, what stroke player you use, if you're a basketball coach, what, you know, what rotations you use. Um, no one at the elite level has the luxury of re- relaxation anymore mm. and, and that actually tends to be humbling, which is good. Absolutely. We've dived on a few different topics in there around, I mean, you've mentioned time management, we, you've mentioned family time and, you know, creating that boundary and, so we talk about you and your role in your career where you are CEO of Vicinity Centres, the owner of Adelaide 36s, you're on a bunch of boards as well in amongst all that. How do we, and this is a question I typically ask and I'm really I'm passionate about it, so how can we fully pursue and realise our visions while at the same time cultivating love and thriving relationships? <sighs> It's a lot in that question. Uh, no, that's why you're favourite now because it's a toughie. Um, look, uh, I, I think I think firstly you can't be a workaholic. Mm. Just being very practical about it, yeah. you can't. You, you know, you've got to, you know, as a parent, you've got to, you know, make that, you know, that call to cancel a meeting to go and pick your your child up at school mm. because they want to talk. Yeah. Um, You've got to also actually understand you can't schedule kids. Yeah. Like they'll come in and out of, you know, um, 
the room when you're doing some work or something and they'll have a question to ask and it could be at 7 a.m. in the morning or 9 o'clock at night, it doesn't matter. But mm. you, you've, you've just got to have, I think, a philosophy that you, um, you prioritise that. And I actually would argue you prioritise it above all else. Okay. Now, that's an interesting one, I hope, because mm. the reason I say above all else is there's, um, there's structures and processes and uh, things in place in the business world. There's Microsoft Outlook calendars. There's, there's a demanding schedule. Um, you know, I was half an hour late here. We've rescheduled our day because it's important to me yeah. to do this talk. And, you know, we um, – so that'll get – that kind of takes care of itself. You've got to actually create the capacity for the family to exist alongside of that. And the only way to do that, I think, is to prioritise the family yeah. because this over here is so overwhelming and has its absolute own momentum. So you've got to sort of sit there and go, you know, yeah, I'm going to have dinner, you know, with Kirsty tonight. I'm going to take Jack to a basketball game. I'm going to walk the dog. We have a great dog, by the way, which I can <laughs> talk to you about. And that's, well, that's the other key to success is, you know, everyone get a pet. Yeah. Um, and we are we are massive. Oh, my uh, dog gives me the shits. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't talk about mine because he's, he's, uh, he's a bit of a, nah, he's bit of a right. character. He's but, good. He's a good fun. Well, actually, what, what breed is he? I've got a Cavoodle. Oh, you t- actually, I think I knew that. Yeah, yeah. it's a Labradoodle. Uh, yeah. And, and the name? Freddie. Freddie, Yuki. Yeah. yeah. So Yuki the Labradoodle is a bit of a, a terror around the streets of Dulwich, but, uh, but we love him. Yeah. Funnily enough, though, I was saying to Kirst just the other day, I actually find uh, walking him for 15 minutes in the morning and the evenings, it brings me unmitigated joy. Yeah. Did you find that? Uh, no. Not so well, much. Freddie's, no. Freddie's, Freddie's Fre- obviously no, a bit Freddie, of a handful. Freddie's, uh, the kids and my, and my wife love, love Freddie. F- my... The walking element for me and the running element for yeah, me brings yeah, me right. an immense amount of joy. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm but, uh, maybe needing to do a little more running, a little well, less dog the, walking. But. I'm going to ask this question, and we're, yeah. we're digressing here, but I'm happy right. to go down. Did, did you have a, a dog growing up? Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, we had a cat. We had uh, dogs and cats, but we had a we had a famous uh, uh, cat called Thomas okay. uh, that my mother it was still bringing a tear to the eye, yeah. um, and he lived to the ripe old age of nineteen. Yeah, uh, and we had a dog before that called Speck. There you uh, go. And then, and then another, actually, a second dog called Sabina. It was a big rot, Rottweiler, and, a, and I am totally digressing. But we had, um, yeah, we always had pets. As I kids. Had, so I only owned a cat, and, and same ah. thing. I from the the moment I was born, we had our cat. Her name was Spicy. Don't ask me where that name from. Very good name. It was named before I was born, right? Ah. So, and then, but 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 she passed away when I was eighteen. So I only ever had. A cat in my life. Uh, did you say eighteen? Eighteen years wow. old. Wow. So right? it was like a like a sibling. She absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and but the thing was that this thing left me alone, right? Yeah. Whereas the dog is just in my face all the time. <laughs> it so, just stares at me all night long. So and and Kirst will tell you uh, this when she sees you, but I. I I become actually fascinated by the differences between dogs and cats. Yeah, to be quite honest with you, then there's a lot of science now that all dogs are descended from grey wolves. Uh, yes, yes. It's the most incredible thing. And so, and for whatever reason, humans and wolves coexisted in peace. They did. Well, tens know, of, for tens of thousands well, of years. Would you know the story behind that? As in, like, because they, back in the day, humans were nomadic, right? So That's they moved, right. They moved, they moved, but the wolves used to attack. So the humans would then find a spot up against the cliff 
so that they couldn't get attacked from behind. Right. So then the wolves then became hungry because there was nothing left to eat, so they would sort of float around the edges. Eventually the humans started throwing food towards the the wolves and that's how they sort of became. So it's an amazing sort of turn of events. And it explains a lot of Yuki's current behaviour. Uh, uh, yeah. So there you go. But no, look, well, well done. What, Gee, what, you're, a, you're, you're an eclectic man. I do read yeah. a little bit of history. I do like that well sort done. of stuff. Um, but what were we talking about? <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, just, just, no, that's right. Just they're creating the space that's in the family. Right. And, that's the way we were. Yeah, and, and, um, and, and look, you know, I, I actually think balance in life uh, is everything to your business world and to your family world. So Yeah. I um, want to ask you a question. So I, I um, you know, business is growing. We're doing quite well. Things are, things are moving in the right direction. Um, and then and you know, this is a current and life event for me right now. I just, there's a lot on. Right? Yeah. And yeah. this is my third podcast this week. I've had like, and so... There's been um, the business is going. There's a lot of quotes going out. There's a lot of reliance. There's a lot of uh, on, on me or to make decisions and people need things. Not to mention you're throwing COVID with people being yeah. sick and yeah. there's just extra work that needs to be done. So I'm working late pretty much every night. And last night I think my wife had enough. <laughs> and and so what, I think the bit for me is you talk about priorities, but if you pull one lever, another one's affected, right? Yeah, and yeah. and so there's 20 yeah. people in the team. Yeah. If I pull that lever, then potentially 20 people might get affected. Whereas if I pull the work right. lever, then it's only my wife. And typically, like I know that sounds really bad, but my wife and kids, I should say. Yeah. But that's the really hard decision, which you kind of know that there's always going to be that unconditional love come from your wife and kids. Yeah. So they are, I feels like they're the ones that always suffer. Yeah, look, I, I hear you and I think it's almost having a culture in your workplace where, which, which you would have just knowing you a little bit, but where uh, firstly your absence is not, you know, that you're not the only reason the machine keeps moving and, yeah. and again the system just keeps, has its own logic. And then secondly, I, I think, um, you know, keeping your wife happy. So, so, so <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so no, on a serious note, yeah. Look, it's not easy, right? And I think, you know, we use all these buzzwords, but the, the real answer that everyone watching this podcast would know is that um, it, it, it's often a struggle. And, you know, you've just got to almost transactionally figure out the way forward. Um, what was that line from Winston Churchill? You know, keep calm and keep buggering on. You yeah. know, just keep going and life... If you're surrounded by people with good values who have your interests at heart, you'll get through the bump. Yeah. Um, but uh, your, but wife, your wife's a very understanding lady, mate. So. She is. And I think you're right, though. It is about building it to being a machine that can sort of spin on itself. I think Yeah. as you're growing and you're growing through those growth phases. It's hard. It's, 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 it's really hard. And that's why I say, like, the reality is, yeah, it, there's a lot of trade-offs and it's not easy. So... At, Let's move into the world of the basketball because I am conscious of your time. So I do want to talk a little bit about the 36ers. Yeah. When does the possibility of owning a basketball company come to the, <laughs> come to the fray? Like where, at what point in your career do you go, actually, I'm going to spend my hard-earned savings on a basketball club? I um, – that's a lot in that question too. <laughs> I, I, uh, look, I – uh, I'd always been fascinated by the business of sport. Mm. And I, I I'd, started, I'd always been a sports tragic and I'd always been somebody who played sport. Uh, and, you know, it was just a natural outgrowth for me of the, 
you know, the fondness I have for sport with the fact I was probably at work, you know, 30 years in business and, um, and it was instinctive, you know, when the opportunity arose, which was November of 2016, so some time ago now, uh, I didn't even give it a second thought. Mm. To be honest, I was, uh, I remember, I, I tell a really funny story. I, I was actually in Adelaide and a mate of mine who was one of the prior ownership group, um, you know, for various reasons they were looking for investment. And I remember I was getting the tram from Victoria Square because I was living, I, was, I didn't have a car here, I was getting the tram from Victoria Square down to uh, Glenelg and I just met this guy for a coffee. And I just remember this idea it just consumed me. Like I was thinking, oh, my God, I just this, I really want to do this. Mm. And I've never wavered in that. I, yeah. I don't know why. Maybe it's um, some form of undiagnosed uh, sort of, you know, <laughs> challenge uh, that I've got uh, in, 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 my, in my makeup. But I, I was, you know, I, I've, I've never regretted it. It's, it's, it's been a, a really tough journey, having mm. said that. But, no, I've never regretted it. And it was almost instinctive. So, I mean, you are, you have been CEO of City Developments, vicinity centres, you make really smart and intelligent decisions on investments and where to go. And yeah, hopefully. Ho hopefully. Well, the proof's in the pudding, right? Did, was there a lot of rigour around your decision to purchase or was it more of an emotional? T totally emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think you got to... You know, at the end of the day, you just have to recognise probably in life there are certain things you're going to be emotional about. Yeah. Um, so it's know. a love it's it's a love job, really. It, 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 it is. It's yeah. A side side project passion. It, it's it's been the reason it's been so tough is, uh, and and happy to talk about it in 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 as much detail as you want, actually, Daniel, because I've reflected on it a fair bit. So uh, the economics of a modern basketball team are. Um, only about 20% of your revenue base comes from crowd attendances. Mm -hmm. So merchandising, corporate sponsorship, TV deal, business cottery clubs, yeah. um, you know, uh, memberships. Yeah. Okay, these are um, about 80% of your revenue in any given year, maybe even higher than that. Um, and certainly during COVID they have been higher. The, the attendance component has dropped. So what does that imply? Well, it implies that the fan engagement, the fan base is crucial and it actually is the mechanism by which the team defines itself and the city in a certain sense defines itself. But in the black box, you know, what the wizard sort of needs to do behind the curtain is make that other 80% work. Mm. And that was the tough part with the Sixers because when we took it over, we had a, we had a, a fantastic club. We still do. The reason I was late... Um, this morning to this interview was, uh, and we're not going out live, right? So I can tell you. you yeah. But I met with Al Green, who was um, who's, who's going to be announced this afternoon. Is in our one of our two inductees in the Hall of Fame. The other is uh, I've got a Russian meet after the podcast. Is Scotty Ninnis, and they're both right. great sixes and great friends. But as I was talking to Al this morning, we were talking about this journey, and um, all Australian sports have evolved, I think, from. And the AFL did it first, but crickets had to do it. Mm. You evolve from the club uh, into the, the business, into the, the, the professional organisation is maybe a better, better phraseology. And that journey is really painful. Mm. It's painful for people who have given their time, at, you know, as a volunteer rubbing down the legs of players after games. It's, yeah. it, it's, it's tired for the, uh, the person that's been selling pies and pasties mm. 
you know, in, in the store and, and, and loves the club. Um, and, and so, so where, I, where it was challenging for me was that 20% which defines us was not the part that was going to help us survive. Mm. So helping us survive was 80% and that's what I didn't know going in because mm. I'd always been a fan. Yeah, I'd always been one of the twenty percent. I still am. I mean, you know, you see me at games like a crazy, yeah. um, uh, jumping up out of my seat and sort of pu- pushing my heart rate up higher than not, it needs to be, but not holding it against. No, but 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 what I needed to actually get my arms around it took me a while was was actually the the organisation of the business, mm. the organisation of the club, and and luckily for us, we've had a great group on the journey. Uh, the past players have been incredible. The fans have been. Fantastic, you know, I, I can't, I can't complain. You, uh, you seem to, uh, you've appointed Nick Barbato lately yeah. as CEO, and, and he's brought in John Tianos as well as COO. Yeah, they're doing some pretty amazing stuff. It Certainly looks like are. The, on the back end, I mean, the performances on the on the court haven't been probably where you need them to be or would like them to be. But yeah. behind the scenes, it seems like things are starting to really move in the right direction. Yeah, we, just on the on-the-court stuff, I think um, watch this space. We, we um, again, had maybe an organisational model that needed tweaking. Mm-hmm. So we had a, a single point of accountability uh, for recruitment. We've now dispersed that um, and taken that budget and deployed it across um, scouting, assistant coaching and data analytics team. It, it's been quite revolutionary what we've done off the court in the last three months. Um so I think we'll get some better results, and and I, I think the other thing is generationally, we came we we're coming to an end of a great era, which mm. was Joey Wright's era. Yeah, um, still the best coach that I've ever seen. I think CJ Bruton will grow into that mm-hmm. coach, uh, um, and a remarkable leader, and had assembled just a remarkable team. Yeah, uh, and and like every sport, we'd probably about two years ago started to to see some retirements and the like, but. Uh, yeah, as we say, the front office. We use this American expression to describe Giannis and yeah. Barbato. You know, the front office guys are, uh, are fantastic. Um, a little small tidbit was um, I spoke to Nick a couple of days ago and I'm like, oh, I'm going through my diary and I'm like, oh, we've got the Sixers in business lunch yeah. next week. And I'm like, look, you know, I, I get into sort of, oh, I land from Melbourne at this time. And he just he goes, GK, you got to be there. He goes, there's 500 people coming. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And that's what these guys have done. Yeah. Um, they're, uh, Nick, it was very interesting and unorthodox recruitment because, as, as you know, uh, having grown, grown up with him, Dan, he was a soccer guy, yeah. professional soccer player for Adelaide City, moved, did an MBA in sport at Liverpool University and, and, but, and had mainly worked in that sport. But, okay, so just park that for one second and we used a sports headhunter. Mm. And what the headhunter said to me was, you need to start looking at soccer executives because like basketball, soccer is actually a global sport but is a second sport in Australia. Mm. But it's going to be a maybe larger sport or, or competing with AFL 20 years from now. Mm. And so that was a paradigm shift. And then the way we found Barbado was we put all these guys through the psychographic profile and my friend Nick Marvin, who's a former CEO of the Perth Wildcats, and he goes, GK, this guy's perfect. He'll, he'll be able to get along with you. Like, like I've, I've looked at him. He'll actually he'll understand you. I'm like, oh, okay, tick, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, look, Nick's been a revelation and, and recruited in Johnny Chianos, who's been um, incredible on the commercial side and, and also from a soccer background and yeah. 
we were very lucky to get um, get the team we've got. And they have, of course, like all great leadership groups, they've, they've now – that has cascaded through the people they've brought in. Yeah, great. Um, so we've probably got the best soccer leadership of any sport, <laughs> basketball or soccer in Australia. Well, there's a few points in that. And, and one yeah. thing I would like uh, – I would love you to for the plug, the, the, you know, the sixes in business stuff that you guys yeah. are doing. It seems to yeah. be, you know, when you talk about a revenue base and bringing in some yeah. opportunities for growth within 36s, that seems like a, such a great idea. Well, I think I said to you the other day, you know what, you know what I love doing? So at the first sixes in business event I went to because John sort of did it and I was over trying to sort of get some shopping centres restarted and I – I came to that event um, down at Henley Beach yeah. and I walked in and I'm like, I don't know anyone here. Yeah. Because it's all, all new. The young guys yeah. um, like yourself and guys in digital and I think my brother-in-law was there and yeah. all this sort of stuff. But the interesting thing was we we are through Sixes in Business building a network with the emerging business titans of, of South Australia and that to me was, was the great part about it. Mm. So, you know, I'm 57 years old. I'm no spring chicken. And I've probably got a pretty decent group of of, of uh, uh, contacts who who love the club and support us. But what I love about Sixes in Business is it's brought together. You know, I'm, I'm guessing the median age is probably forty, mm. and it's a lot of new economy businesses: consulting, digital, uh, defence, uh, solar. Yeah. Uh, with Dave Scarcella and, and and tremendous guys <laughs> like that. Dave's been on the podcast. Well, I'm not <laughs> surprised. He's a he's, he's uh, <laughs> and and Kirsty's brother Newman works with him. Yeah, um, absolutely. And they and we got Aaron um, Hickman coming great. on. Great, another soon another great from, from another great basketball yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah, and um and Newman was actually uh, Aaron was actually Newman's best man. Oh, there you go. Famous story. So yeah. anyway, um, uh, at a wedding I was late to. Um, <laughs> Seems like a common theme here. Well, I was late to because I was actually watching the Sydney Kings get destroyed oh, okay. and lost. And, and it's, it's still to this day the worst argument I've ever had with uh, Kirsty. But um, God love her. But anyway, yeah. Look, look, it's a great group, and it's and it's the and it's the and what I like about it is it's the emerging group of, of business leadership in this state. And how cool is that? Like yeah. we're going to have generational leadership on the commercial side for the Sixers. I think coming out of this group. How do you? Um... How do you manage the emotion of it all, right? I mean, earlier, you know, you're talking about Sydney getting thumped and the other, you know, when you're screaming and yelling at the sport, at the game and managing, you know, what might be a tough week with vicinity, then the sixes go down. And how do you compartmentalise the whole piece? I mean, I think you've got to always understand that um, firstly, sport is an important element of life, but it's not life. So, you know, that yeah. old cliche, you know, keep it in perspective. Yeah. Um, having said that, I hate losing uh, <laughs> at all. And, yeah. and I really hate losing basketball games, but I'm all right when it's an away loss. <laughs> but when it's a home loss, I'm going to come back and face <laughs> you and, and other, you know, but, but you, you know, sponsors, etc., members. Is uh, a home, so, um, to classify Melbourne as home as well? <laughs> so you can't uh, you can't lose in Melbourne and, and I, I, I I love Melbourne. My, my dad was Melbourneian. Yeah. Um, no, I, I um, uh, we've actually had a pretty good record on the road in Melbourne. Okay. So we've we've actually beaten United in Melbourne a couple of times uh, since I had the vicinity role, and then we have had a great rivalry with South East Melbourne, mm. um, which you know we probably split those games 50 yeah. But we've done okay. But no, uh, no, I don't regard a win in Melbourne as a home win. <laughs> um, so anyway. So just on the compartmentalization of it though, do you, yeah. do you how do you manage your mental health in in 
just with everything that's going on in your life. I actually exercise, believe it or not, quite a bit. So I try to do a lot of walking every day. Believe it or not, I do 16,000 steps. Daniel, yeah, I'm very wow. proud of that. Very um, good. Doesn't always show. No. But I just a few wines that you have every night. No, yeah, <laughs> no, no. It's just, just the Irish Irish gene too, isn't it? But no, I um I don't um uh fun, fun enough, I don't I don't really have any anything other than maybe just family and a bit of exercise and yeah. Um you know, I I and I actually I've just always been able to switch off. I mean, mm. I think uh maybe this sounds a bit um cocky or something, I hope it doesn't, but I because I've always been under pressure, like right from my 20s, it's never seemed unusual when I am under pressure. Mm. So I just sort of roll with it and just yeah. say, look, you know, this is – just get through it. And I, I do – you know, I go to bed early. Um, I, I make sure I get a lot of rest. Um, what do you get, six, seven hours sleep a night? Yeah, usually yeah. Uh, on average about that. Um, yeah. You know, about 10 o'clock sleep, wake up at 5, 5.30, yeah. something like that. Um that's it. I mean, I you know, I, I think you've got to take also regular breaks. You know, mm. we do a, Jack and I do a driving holiday once a year, which you know, we just get in the car and, and we really talk. Yeah. You know, so I think it's also having that just that ability also to schedule breaks and and the like. Um, yeah, people are always surprised that I'm uh, you know um, probably hopefully people would say I'm um, more calm and relaxed when they meet me than they perhaps thought I was going to be. You know? <laughs> um, anyway. You've you've left a good impression on me, Grant. And a few times that we've uh, we've caught up. I want to just touch on so going back to the ownership side yeah, yeah. of Thirty Sixes, the CE role, uh, working them both in tandem, plus all the boards and when. When and we are uh, we top we top uh, picked on this last time when we caught up for a coffee a couple yeah. of weeks back yeah. and 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 I would really be interested in you sharing your thoughts again. But when does enough become enough? Um. So I think it's it, it comes back to how you define uh, success. Mm. Um, how do I define how I define success has probably changed. Yeah. Um, I think I'm much more focused now on shared endeavor. Mm. Um, I think I'm less focused on individual accomplishment. I think that's made me much more relaxed than I used to be. So that that actually does take the pressure off. But on the question of when is enough enough, I mean, um, look, I don't think I can do I, I don't want to do put it that way much more in terms of time commitment. So yeah. I can maybe leave it at that. Look, you know, in terms of financial health, I mean, I think I, I used that quote to you that, you know, somebody went up to Jack Nicholas once and said, and I'm not saying I'm in any yeah. way comparable to, to, you know, to Nicholas in any walk of life uh, that I've, I've I've worked in, but somebody said, oh, Mr. Nicholas, you know, <clears throat> you know, how does it feel, um, you know, to have been the, you know, the person that won the most on the PGA Tour in terms of prize money? And... And he was genuinely surprised. And the answer he gave was, well, I don't worry about the money. I just focus on the next putt. Mm. And so I think it's it's almost like I think we're lucky enough to live in a country where if you work hard and you're creative, you're going to have, chances are, some degree of material success. But it mustn't define you. In the same way, it didn't define Jack Nicholas. It just what he was worried about was the, you know, the smoothness of his his putting stroke and, and hopefully for me I worry about, you know, getting the Sixers to a championship, you know, being a good CO day in, day out, 
being a good family man. Um, you know, they're, they're what really motivate me in my different um, heavily compartmentalised um, yeah. uh, world. Is there – is up still the trajectory for you in mm, the sense great of – Great question. Mm. No, it's not actually. I'm, no, I, I'm, um, I'm probably in a harvesting mode, if I'm really honest, mm. in my life a little bit. I, uh, I don't – I don't know what's caused this. Maybe it's contentment, but I don't have that same degree of just burning desire to – to, I mean, I do have a business. I was going to say win, yeah. But it's not. It doesn't define me. It doesn't consume me in a way that perhaps it once did. Yeah. But I don't know if it means um, how you'd sort of equate that to, to direction. Um, I, you know, I think I just focus maybe a little more on inputs and processes rather than outputs these days. Mm. You know, I just say, look, if I've done my best, I did the right thing, I was ethical, hardworking. Hopefully, I added some value on the journey. What will be will be, mm. um, but certainly with the Sixers, that's not true because I, <laughs> I am obsessed with getting the championship, <laughs> as everyone knows. So absolutely, um, it, maybe it, ask me once we've got the championship, and I'll, I'll be even hopefully more more relaxed. I will. It certainly sounds though, and just based on your language, uh, that you are deriving a lot of joy and contentment out of the relationships that you're building along the way. But that's what you've got, right, yeah. in life, right? The key thing in life is is people, uh, I think. Mm. I mean, rather than things, you know, you sort of have a choice probably in life. And yeah. I was just lucky enough I was brought up in a way where um, we never um, – and we had we had periods where mum and dad had to work really hard, and especially mum, candidly, to put us through school. And and But I suppose, um, yeah, we've been lucky on the journey um, and, and that's probably made, made me um, – Give me the, the 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 bubble in which to actually invest in relationships. I, I think sometimes people that have had a degree of material success, uh, they they say things that are actually disrespectful to people that haven't. And I'm very lucky, I believe. Mm. I'm very lucky, and that has given me the ability to invest in relationships. You know, some some folks don't have that opportunity. Mm. They're working two jobs. Um, and, and I think it's very important for those that have had success not to be too sort of smart-alecky about it and preach to the world. I, I reckon it's really hard, you know, for a lot of people out there and I think uh, p- people like myself need to also recognise that. But, mm. yes, to the extent that I can uh, invest in relationships, I always do, always do, always have. And always Is that the key? Is that the key? 100%. Yeah. Because, you know, that old saying, you know, just be, you know, um, you know, it takes more muscles to frown than to smile. <laughs> it's true. You know, if if you exude a positive vibe, even if it seems like all everything's against you, people key off that. And that's really the art of leadership. Mm. It's just, again, staying calm and just evoking confidence. Um, and, yeah, I think that's actually been, again, a, something that hopefully I've, I've, I've done on the way. Brilliant. One last, I am conscious of your time. So one last quick question before we go. Well, actually, you might ask two quick questions before. Yeah, sure. So, and, and you touched on it before on how basketball might actually be the sport, the number one sport. We see it in America. Like yeah. America, basketball is huge. And then um, – and, and all. And I think if you look around the, the world, basketball is one of the top-rated sports. Yeah. In, in Australia, basketball is actually basketball and soccer from a participation point of view are the top two. That's right, right? And, and especially sub thirty. Yeah. So the young people are all playing. Uh, are all playing. 
And if you go to the basketball, and I empower any, everyone who's listening to this show, get off to a basketball game. It's entertainment plus, like an NBL game. It's You put on an amazing show. Thanks. Yeah. Far better than what I – like I'm a big footy fan, right? Yeah. AFL football fan. Right. Um, but the, from an entertainment point of view, take the kids. It's, it's brilliant. When and how does basketball become the number one sport and do you think it will? It's it's uh, certainly the growth trajectories mm. suggest that it will. Um, yeah. I think you've got to look back at the intrinsics as to why you know why would it be the number one sport? So, unlike a lot of other sports, you can't really get injured in basketball mm. too badly. Um, uh, if you play professionally, you know you, you may be going to have a leg injury or a hip yeah, injury at some point, stuff, yeah. but you're not going to have a head injury as you can get in other sports. So you know. Um, you know, the, the buy side decision for our club and the sporting decision is, is usually made by, by mums. So we're a family club, but within that construct, women make the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they like the fact that the children aren't going to be hurt. Uh, men and women can both play it with exactly the same rules, timetable, et cetera. That's quite unique if mm. you really think about it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's time limited, so it's over in two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the final thing is for the really good athletes, unlike, say, AFL, basketball and soccer, for that matter, have the ability to play internationally. Yeah. Um, and so for really good, talented kids like, say, Josh Giddy, uh, you know, who's obviously, unfortunately, he's injured now, but yeah. Josh was with us last year now with Oklahoma in, in the NBA, but Josh has carved out a career path. So there's many things internationally. So there's many things that impact a parent's call on what sport mm. their kids play in. And that's where we try to get, if you will, the value proposition to, 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 to resonate is, is with uh, parents and specifically uh, mums because um, it's a hell of a sport for them mm. to have their kids participate in. Oh, fingers crossed. My kids play basketball. Yeah, great. Yeah. In, I just remember I'm, you telling me that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in, in love with the sport. And yeah. It, um, yeah, I think the, like I said, the entertainment plus that, that the 36 yeah. is put on, it, it's just the thing that's going to keep more and more kids watching the game and getting involved. And, and you know, we've had record crowds. It's yeah. interesting on your point. We've had record crowds uh, even the last couple of years when we haven't been – so we had a record for, with the COVID benchmark yeah. even prior to that. I think we are third, third highest in the league in the, yeah. in the last year pre-pandemic. And in each of those years we missed the finals, which I'm not happy about. But people kept coming. Mm. And the reason why is it's it's an entertainment proposition as much as a sporting mm. fixture. And to your point, mate, you know, people, parents uh, of kids, you sit there and you see your kids happy and having a great time listening to music. Those and, bloody clackers there. And <laughs> using the clacker and seeing Murray the Magpie, yeah. uh, which I still think is the best mascot uh, in, he's uh, brilliant. in South Australian sport. My daughter had a photo with him yeah. in one of the last games. Closely guarded sequels <laughs> to where Murray um, rests. <laughs> in the evenings, but uh, he's a very large magpie. He is. Um, one last question before we get into some quick fire. What does the future look like for Grant? I, I think I've got, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think I've got a, probably a pivot point coming up in three to four years, um, like many people do when, mm. they, when they, my God, when they hit their 60s. But, yeah. um, I, I, you know, I'd like to really do much more of um, – uh, giving back, actually, in, in my twilight years, I've been very blessed with the country I grew up in, the South Australian, magnificent South Australian community I grew up in specifically. I know I want to give back, so hopefully I can, in a small way, do that. 
Brilliant. Well, we'll keep a watch out for that. Right, oh, some quick fire questions. Okay, here we go. We, uh, round this, off. this is the tough part, right? <laughs> oh, not so much. It depends. Sometimes that they can go on for. I've actually had these quick fire questions go on for half. Is an this hour. like the chaser? Am I going? To... <laughs> no, no. no. All right, okay. Because my mum loves the chaser, so <laughs> she's probably going to be listening in somewhere. We're big readers here. We love reading, knowledge, personal growth, development, at creating synergy and synergy IQ. What are you reading right now? Uh, Eddie Jones's book on leadership, how he turned around the English rugby union team. Uh, brilliant. Good great, read. Great book. Yeah, yeah, great. And given to me by my best mate, so who knows me well and pick, picked a good book for me. Excellent. Second question. What book do you feels, feel that stands out from the crowd when trying to develop your career into, say, a senior leadership role? And I saw Good to Great yeah uh, on your desk i think that's a that's a fantastic benchmark yeah um just how to actually take something that that's good enough but actually make it world class mm. and i think you mentioned that earlier getting the right people on the bus 100 percent. rule number one yeah 100 percent. and yeah. and and that's the that's the surest path to to i think um uh, success if you can do that do you listen to any other podcasts or anything other than the creating synergy podcast obviously um <laughs> I know you were on the Cornsy one too, which was yeah. So, so I was going to say the one I usually listen to is uh, my uh, great mate and a person I admire tremendously, Graham Corns. Conversations yeah. with Cornsy. Yeah. Um, I do, I do try to listen in online to that. Yeah. Um, and, and look, I've got to say, give a shout out here for my other great mate at Five Double but I always try to listen to Rowie's sports show. So even okay. even when I was up in Asia, uh, I'd be there in Singapore, and it was about two thirty in the afternoon, and I'd. I'd lock on through the internet yeah. and listen to listen to Stephen. Uh, just you know, um, he's you know entertain us and he's and, a passionate type. He's a great man, and <laughs> and he, if you haven't interviewed him on this podcast, uh, oh, I'd love to. He's well, uh, and Cornsy as well. If you yeah. can ever uh, do an intro, for yeah, him, ask, that'd be uh, if Rory comes on, ask him about our trip to Tasmania last year. All right, it was quite quite entertaining and some funny stories. Well, I need you to help me get him on. Yeah, okay, good. Happy to <laughs> if, uh, if okay, so. What is one lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? The importance of team. Mm. Yeah, that's a very self-critical remark I've just made because it took me a long time, but it's mm. it's everything. Absolutely. All right, we won't touch on that. No, go on, like, go on. No, it's okay. Well, I was going to say the importance of team and 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 so for me, is it the... Is it the way you manage that team, yeah. or is it the well? Well, the other answer I was going to give, yeah, the other answer I was going to give you was the power of humility, not mm. being humble, but the power of it. Yeah, you know, most people know who you are; they know your track record. They're already got a level of respect or disrespect based on you as an object. If you're humble, my mm. goodness, how powerful is that? Yeah. So I think the power of humility, and and that goes to, I sort of jumped the gun on your question, but but that. That I think is how you lead most effectively Absolutely. is by humble, effective thought leadership. Of you know, and to me, that's that's the byword. Spot on. What's some of the best advice that you've ever received? <laughs> oh. Well, this is an interesting one, and it comes back to where we started with the tennis games. But there was a actually uh, there was a mate of my dad's, and actually his son and I were, were good friends too. A guy called Jack Leaker. And this is before internet and everything. And I can still remember I was going, I was finishing up at school and heading into law school. And he said, you know, there's no, this is in the early days, there's no business schools here. He goes, but he goes, 
a fellow like you, you should go to America and do an MBA. I can still see him standing in this little, mm. you know, patio we had off the side of the tennis court saying it to me. And then he goes, and the number one in the world is the Harvard Business School. And do you know, that stuck in my mind for 15 years. Uh, yeah, 15 years until I went there. Yeah, wow. And, th- and then there are other great advices, uh, advice on the way. The other great one, which I quote all the time, was from um, an American guy, um, Tom Barrick, who's a, a colourful character. Uh, and you've got to always understand your mentors have strengths and weaknesses. Absolutely. Um, but Tom said to me once, I was, I was young, I was probably a bit, a bit cocky about something, he goes, do you, um, you know, this financial stuff, do you think you're actually the best in the world? Well, that's a funny question. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, even if I thought I was, yeah. I, you know, there was only one answer, no, I don't, right? Yeah. So I said, no, I don't. And he goes, well, let me tell you something. He goes, if you're not the best in the world, then be a nice guy because if you're not the best in the world and you're not a nice guy, people will find excuses not to deal with you. Yeah. So the metaphor was, doesn't matter how good you are, always, always be approachable and, and courteous. And uh, Tom, to his eternal credit, was a thorough gentleman. Yeah. Um, in, no one likes in, in his style. No one likes a brilliant jerk. No one likes a brilliant jerk. Exactly. Well, what's the old saying? You know, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. Yeah, correct. You're not pushing yourself out of your Absolutely. comfort zone, and yeah, nobody likes a jerk. Well, smarts only get you so far. You're right. Like it's the the power of EQ and being able to deal with yeah the, the humility and a- absolutely, absolutely modesty goes a long way too. Yeah, I, th- I I agree. If you could invite three people for dinner, who oh. would, who would they be? <laughs> Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Okay, because um, funny enough, one of the books that I, I really resonated with um, was Managing My Life, mm. um, which I think is an extraordinary story yeah. uh, about the turnaround of Manchester United mm. um, and probably I think the greatest story that I've seen yet. In I, haven't, sp- I haven't read it. Managing I've been My reco- Life, yeah. I've, I've re- yeah. I've, it's been recommended. So there's two, there's so two books on Fergie. There's that one and then there's another one just called My Life. But mm. the Managing My Life was a little bit more warts and all. Uh, you know, his his how he – as people always talk about the class of 92, what they don't know is he had six years in the wilderness mm. where he had to take a team that had won the FA Cup and dismantle it because they had gotten lucky and they were never going to win the championship or the European Cup. Uh, so – yeah, I I, uh, I actually have actually a signed copy of it, which uh, I'm very oh, proud very of. Good. Um, you know, I, I think the second one, it's interesting. I, I I not to get political. I think I'd love to talk to Vladimir Zelensky. Oh yeah, I mean, can you? I mean, isn't this the most extraordinary event in thirty or forty this years? Is, it, it blows my mind, and it, yeah. It blows my mind how he was an actor and a, yeah. com- and a comedian and now yeah. he's running a country in the middle of the war. Like that in its own right is un- it's unheard of. Yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and, but also just, just the resilience, you know, mm. and, and, and it's an actor who's led but has led in a way that may redefine the next 20, 30 years. Correct. Um, for the world, you know, and it's, it's, it's stirring stuff. Mm. Um, I've been transfixed on this and I knew we weren't going to discuss politics, Dan, but um, uh, and the third one, I've got to say two ladies, my mum and Kirst. Yeah. Uh, because firstly, I believe at a dinner party you need to have an equal balance of men and women. <laughs> Secondly, they're both great cooks uh, and thirdly, <laughs> they'll both keep me in line so when, when I'm with with uh, Fergie and Zelensky, I won't get out of control. Yeah. 
Brilliant. You got a few points there. The <laughs> yeah, well, they'll probably tune into this. So I, I had to say both. I had to say both of them. You know. Well done. A bit of a different question for you. If you had a time machine, where would you go? This is a good question. <laughs> um, I would like to go to the United States in 1960. And, and be part of what John F. Kennedy was trying to do with that country. Yeah, well, I think history would have been different had he lived. And uh, I think, uh, you know, an extraordinary man um, and uh, somebody who saved the world from nuclear annihilation but was obviously a deeply flawed character. But I would love to – I would have loved to have been um, uh, there at that period of history. Mm. In a position of influence? Yeah. Mm. But, but not – you know, I mean, I think there was only one one person of, of yeah. his caliber, but but the idealism of what he was and, and using power constructively. You know, we don't talk enough anymore about you know sub-Saharan famine, or we don't talk enough about human rights. You know, and that was one period in history which was full of idealism, and I think it was a magnificent period. So um, the time machine, and maybe also, uh, you know, I'd like to go back to. 1986 to see that 36's Invincibles team uh, bestride Australia under the leadership of the great man Ken Cole, uh, who, if Kenny's listening, um, just a magnificent mentor actually to me. And, and um, you know, I mean, there's many periods, but, but no, on a serious note, I think that period in the US would have been just fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. If you had one superhero power, what would oh. it be? <laughs> Luckily, Invisible. Invisible? Because... Because then I could just, you know, you like, like um, you do, you know, you, you sometimes feel like you're in a bit of a goldfish bowl. Yeah. Nice no, just to, you know. It would be. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's funny and I should have asked you a question about that. It would yeah. be a bit of pressure on your shoulders. Uh, not, not really. I mean, I, mean, I think, um, you know, I think you just – look, the, 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 the way to deal with pressure is to assume it away just mm. so it doesn't really exist. And yeah. Okay. I'm just defining success differently and I'm not too worried about this. And, and it does mean you don't care like – all hell about um, the, the the challenge and the quest, but it does mean that you you can sort of you know fall asleep at ten pm at night and mm. and take uh, your labradoodle for a walk and, and not 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 sort of worry yeah. all, all the time. Thank you so much for your time uh, today, Grant, and thank you for everything that you're doing. A for for, for Australia and South Australia in regards to the the basketball and and the vicinity and and all the work that you've done. In, in the past and no doubt all the great stuff you're going to be doing in the future and it's been great watching your your journey over the over the past few years and look forward to seeing seeing more of you as we as we grow thanks daniel it's uh, very kind of you to invite me on so i hope it was it was uh, helpful and uh, i really enjoyed it so thank oh, you there was some brilliant pearls of wisdom thanks again and make sure you um call your mum <laughs> yeah 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 everyone everyone out there call their no, mum absolutely because, uh, there's nobody nobody more important so brilliant good on you thanks again cheers cheers guys thanks for listening to the podcast all you can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au i am going to ask though if you did like the podcast it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe rate and review and if you didn't like it that's all right too there's no need to do anything take care guys all the best Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. 
please jump onto the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.